Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. Our lead story today is, Are We Turning the Corner? Are we entering the post-pandemic world? And there have been a number of conferences now, just within the last week or so, talking about what the post-pandemic world has in store for us. Given the fact that 38%, 38% of the U.S. population is now fully vaccinated, 48% are either fully or partially vaccinated, and already there are a number of conferences now in motion. One, what about the roadblock preventing us from reaching herd immunity? What about immunity for the very young? And what about people who are hesitant to be vaccinated? And also, what about the variants, the mutations, the mutations in Brazil, South Africa? Are they going to pose a problem for the post-pandemic world? Are we going to require booster shots? Well, Pfizer thinks so. Booster shots perhaps every year to ward off different variations of the coronavirus. And the nagging question, who is responsible for the virus anyway? Did it escape accidentally from a Chinese laboratory? Or did it simply migrate from the animal kingdom naturally to humanity? Once again, a group of prominent epidemiologists and scientists are saying, let's look back at exactly who or what was responsible for the first sighting of the virus. And then, of course, the big question is the economy. Is the economy ready to take off? If it takes off, what about inflation? Some economists were worried about hyperinflation, given the fact that the world is awash, awash in printed money. The first knee-jerk reaction of every government to a crisis is, let's rev up the printing presses and print more money. So what does it mean when there's more money pumped into the economy? Prices are already beginning to rise. And what does it mean? And also, we'll say a few things about what's happening with the Chinese rocket program. It's been very prominent recently for two reasons. First of all, we had that uh, booster rocket that fell into the ocean, near the Indian Ocean, just a few weeks ago. And then not only that, we had this spectacular, spectacular landing of a Chinese rocket safely on Mars. So what does it mean for the future of this space program? And also, Chernobyl. Believe it or not, Chernobyl is back in the news again. Some physicists are saying there could be a slight chance of a new explosion at the carcass of this reactor, which melted down and exploded back in 1986. And what does that mean for the Fukushima reactor, given the fact that the Japanese government is planning to dump millions of gallons of contaminated water process contaminated water into the Japan Sea. Well, before we begin summarizing some of the top stories of the past week, let me say thank you. Thank you for all the people that supported exploration and picked up a copy of my latest bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Go to my website if you want to see the reaction of the media to the book. It got rave reviews in the Wall Street Journal, 
mention, very favorable mentions in the New York Times. Also, I've been on MSNBC, on the Stephen Colbert CBS show, also on different programs on CBS and different TV networks. So go to my website, mkaku.org, to find out what all the excitement is about. And then I get asked a question, what next? What next for the quest for the theory of everything? Well, as I mentioned in the book, perhaps the greatest quest in the history of science is the search for a single paradigm, a single principle, a single theme that would explain the rich variety that we see in the entire universe. And we think that theme, the overarching, underlying, unifying theme is music. Cosmic music, the music of subatomic particles, the music of bending space just the way Einstein envisioned it, music. And what's next? Well, first of all, outside Chicago at the Fermi Laboratory, we found the first deviation in the known theory of quantum mechanics, the standard model, and it signals the fact there could be a higher theory out there, that we're just touching the outskirts of this higher unifying principle, the God equation, that may be, just may be detected for the first time last month outside Chicago at Fermi Laboratory. And then dark matter experiments are being conducted even as we speak any day, any year, any decade, we don't know when. We'll find evidence of dark matter. And some people think that dark matter is nothing but the next octave, the next octave of a tiny vibrating string. So find out what all the excitement is about. The book, The God Equation, traces the 2,000-year fascination. The greatest minds in history have struggled with this question. Is there a unifying theme? Is there a single paradigm? Is there a God Equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God? Well, find out and pick up a copy of my book, The God Equation, and support listener-sponsored radio as well. My publisher has generously donated copies of the book to be used as fundraisers for your favorite radio station. Okay, well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. There have been a number of conferences now, given the fact that some people are saying that we are, quote, turning the corner on the coronavirus. Well, is it really true or not? First of all, only 38% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated. And if you include those that have been partially vaccinated, the number goes up to 48%. But to hit herd immunity, the point at which you can say that you have, quote, conquered the virus, you have to hit perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps 70%. And of course, we don't know the fraction of the population that has already been previously infected by the virus. But most epidemiologists would say that, nope, we're not there yet. So it's premature to rip off your mask. Maybe in the presence of other fully vaccinated individuals, you can rip off your mask. But otherwise, keep your masks on. And if you are among the very young, or the people who are hesitant to be vaccinated, then just remember that you may be intentionally or unintentionally a roadblock to achieving herd immunity. And until we reach herd immunity, we cannot close the book 
on this virus. Given the fact that new variants are springing up all the time. In fact, one variant sprung up right here in Manhattan, where I am right now. The main variants to worry about are the Brazilian and especially the South African mutant varieties. Fortunately, they have not busted out into the worldwide arena, and some people think that the existing vaccines give you partial, partial immunity to the South African virus, but that's just a theory. But it does mean that already Pfizer and Moderna have announced that they are making preparations to have a new vaccine ready next year for a booster shot if it is required. So in other words, a word to the wise, it's always good to be one step ahead rather than always reacting to the virus. And so Moderna and Pfizer have already announced that next year they plan to have a booster shot ready just in case a new virus jumps out. And then the next question is, if it jumped out, why did it jump out? Where did it jump out? What caused it to flare up from Wuhan, China? Well, the WHO sponsored a group of scientists just several months ago to investigate the situation and to close the book on the origin of the coronavirus. Well, scientists were not happy at all. They called it a whitewash. You realize that these scientists were not allowed to investigate into these um, laboratories in Wuhan. They were only allowed to visit the outskirts, but they were not allowed to go inside to talk to the scientists, to investigate exactly what is being done there. They were not allowed access to that. And so some people are saying it was just a tourist a tourist look at the Wuhan Institute, not one, but two of them in Wuhan. And some people are saying, isn't it coincidental that the virus jumps out from Wuhan, where we have two high-tech, top-secret laboratories experimenting with deadly germs? And second of all, where did the virus come from? The virus, we think, sprang from bats, that is, the horseshoe bat, and these horseshoe bats are mainly found in Yunnan province, that is hundreds of miles away. So if it did arise from bats, how did it get from Yunnan province all the way up to Wuhan? Well, it turns out that some of these bats are captured by scientists and then shipped to Wuhan to be analyzed. And so it doesn't take a genius to figure out that, well, maybe, just maybe, scientists should investigate the path from Yunnan to Wuhan, Wuhan to the biotech laboratories there, and maybe, just maybe, it was an escapee from the laboratory. Of course, we don't know because the Chinese government has prevented, prevented scientists from going into the laboratories to talk to the scientists, to investigate the laboratory equipment, to find out what is being done. All they were were tourists. They were just tourists visiting the laboratory. And so we still don't know who is really responsible. Well, the next big question is the economy. Will the economy spring back? Well, already there are signs that the economy is coming back slowly, especially in the service sector. The service sector was hit very hard because, of course, the service sector requires close contact with your customers. And as a consequence, theaters had to shut down, restaurants had to shut down, barbershops, anything involving close contact with the customers were basically under lockdown. But now the economy is slowly 
getting back to normal again in certain areas, but you have to worry about inflation. The world is awash in cash. The first thing that any government does, sensing a crisis, is to invoke Keynesian economics and just print money. Just keep on printing as much money as you can to pay off whatever necessary. Well, as a short-term strategy, that actually works. Because, of course, people take the money, stimulate the economy, things start to rev up a bit. But then you have to realize that there's a lot of money circulating in the economy and prices, prices begin to rise. And that's what's happening now. Now, the big question is whether we're going to go into a situation of hyperinflation. That's the big question. Remember Germany? Germany during the 1930s? During the 1930s, most economies were in a depression. However, Germany, they just kept on printing money like crazy. And just to go to the supermarket to get some milk, you had to have a wheelbarrow, a wheelbarrow of cash just to buy some milk. In fact, when I was a kid, I used to collect stamps. And when you collect stamps from Germany in the 1930s, you have these million mark stamps. And you think, oh my God, I'm rich. I'm rich. Look, the stamp says a million marks on it. And then you realize the money is basically worthless, totally worthless, because they simply printed their money, printed their way out of the depression. And of course, that only works in the short term. In the long term, you can't buy anything at all. So is that going to happen? Well, so far, the Feds say no. So far, the Feds say they're looking at it. They're aware of the fact that you print so much money around the world that inflation is a problem, but they think the economy will be back into shape, but we'll wait and see. So far, prices are beginning to rise, and people are looking at these numbers very carefully with so much money in circulation around the world. And of course, again, the big question is, are we close to herd immunity? And the answer is, unfortunately, no. This means that after everything is said and done, we still have to wear masks for the short term, even though if you're in a group of fully vaccinated people, there is no danger or at least no measurable danger in taking off your mask. Well, let's just jump into other news. The other big news is the Chinese space program. Well, the Chinese space program got to got off to a, a rocky start just last month when not one, but two Two booster rockets, the Long March rocket, tumbled in orbit and landed in the ocean. The first booster rocket flamed in the atmosphere last year and landed in the Atlantic Ocean and off the coast of Africa near the Ivory Coast. The second booster rocket also flared up in outer space. It landed in the Indian Ocean and so far, no reported casualties from either, either re-entries. However, some people are saying that isn't the Chinese space program uneven? On one hand, you have to congratulate them for safely landing a rover on the planet Mars, only the second nation in history to do so. But on the other hand, they allow their space debris to land on people's backyard. Well, first of all, you have to understand the Chinese space program from the Chinese point of view. And that is, they are playing catch-up. Catch-up to the West. 
They feel that they are a few decades behind the West, but they are methodically, step by step, following the path taken by the Russians and the Chinese, but on an accelerated time frame. And look, let's face it, 30 years ago, what did the great powers do to their space junk? They let it fall. Remember Skylab? Skylab was this 76-ton satellite which came plunging down into the atmosphere and eventually wound up in Australia. So here was, back in 1979, here was an American satellite that was simply left to drift and then plunge into the ocean. And then look at the Russians. The year before that, the Russians had Cosmos 954 containing a nuclear reactor. That's right, a nuclear reactor plunged from outer space, burned up in the atmosphere over Canada, and contaminated several hundred square miles of Canadian tundra in northern Canada. In fact, the CIA and many other agencies sent secret teams of Huskies into the Canadian tundra to retrieve of as much as they could of a top-secret Soviet satellite. And so the Chinese position is, well, the West did it right. Well, yes, it's true that the West used to simply allow their space junk to disintegrate over somebody's backyard. But you have to realize that starting about 30 years ago, the great powers said, enough is enough. It's too dangerous. We have the technology to stop it. And so they did. 30 years ago, the last satellite was allowed to flame out in outer space to land someplace on the planet Earth. Since then, all the great powers have taken extra care to make sure that there are extra rockets on their empty hull, rocket hull, so that they harmlessly fall into the ocean and not, not land on someone's backyard. And so the hope is that the Chinese are not rushing too fast, trying to catch up to the West, repeating the same mistakes of the West in the same process. And the next question is, can these rocket spectacular missions be used for military purposes? Well, yes and no. First of all, science fiction writers envision space wars taking place from outer space with bases on the moon shooting hydrogen bombs back to the Earth. Well, that's not a very practical vision, given the fact that it takes about three days, three days for a mission to go from the Earth to the moon and another three days to come back. But a war, a war in outer space takes place in a matter of minutes given the fact that it only takes 90 minutes, 90 minutes to go completely around the planet Earth. It only takes 30 minutes, 30 minutes for an ICBM to land on your backyard, uh, fired from thousands of miles away. So in other words, a military base on the moon, well, yeah, you can beat your chest and say that you have superiority on the moon, but to what purpose? It's simply too far away to fight a space war. However, are the great powers experimenting with killer satellite technology? That's the real danger. The danger is not that people set up moon bases and Mars bases from which to launch a war. That's not the problem. The problem is that we rely heavily upon a network of satellites. Right now, there are about 6,000 operational and dead satellites orbiting the planet Earth at the present time. And any nation which simply detonates a hydrogen bomb in the atmosphere could literally wipe out a good fraction of those satellites. And guess who's most dependent 
on those satellites for telecommunications, for military purposes, for the internet, for GPS. Which nation controls over half of these satellites? It is the United States. So in other words, the United States is the most vulnerable to a space war, in which case even a small nation like like Korea, for example. North Korea could put a atomic bomb in outer space and literally wipe out hundreds, if not thousands, of telecommunication systems blinding, blinding the United States in the opening shots of a war. So, in other words, in whose advantage is it to sign a treaty? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that it's in the interest of the United States, which has the largest stake in telecommunications and in satellite technology to sign some kind of treaty, especially with the Chinese as they emerge as a member of the space club, to rein in the excesses of what could happen if a war breaks out. Now, we do have a treaty. It's the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Looking back on it after so many decades, it looks kind of quaint kind of quaint that that's what they worried about back in 1967, but it's held the peace. You got to give it credit. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 basically said two things. First of all, the great powers are not to put nuclear weapons in outer space. In other words, no hydrogen bombs in space. And second of all, no nation can declare a celestial body as its property. In other words, you cannot plant a flag on the moon and saying that you control the moon. Well, looking back on it, it seems so quaint because the main danger in outer space is not necessarily nuclear weapons, though that would be horrible, but killer satellite technology, ASAT technology, where satellites are used to knock down other satellites or laser beams or particle beams to blind or disable satellites. In other words, in a gunfight between two gunslingers, one gunslinger reaches for sand and throws sand in the enemy's eyes in the opening shots of a gunfight, blinding the enemy, paralyzing them, and then at leisure, you can dispose of your rival. So in other words, the real danger is that with killer satellite technology, with lasers, particle beams, kinetic energy weapons, kill weapons, not necessarily hydrogen bombs, you can very rapidly uh, blind an enemy in the heat of a major confrontation or war. That's why some people are saying, why not? Why not sign a revised version of the Outer Space Treaty of 1967? And also speaking about the past, Chernobyl, believe it or not, is back in the news. It was back in 1986 that the Chernobyl reactor exploded. A gigantic steam explosion blew the top right off that reactor. Roughly 30% of the core inventory was pulverized and was sent into the air, where it then flowed over large parts of Europe. And we're still debating exactly how many people were adversely affected medically by the Chernobyl experiment, but it's not over by any means. You see, how did Gorbachev handle the 1986 explosion at Chernobyl? He called in the Red Air Force. The Red Air Force came in with fleets of helicopters, helicopters that had special lead shielding to protect the pilots, and they dropped borated sand over 
the reactor, this flaming reactor that was burning out of control, and sandbagged it. Boron uh, absorbs neutrons, quelling the chain reaction. Sand then quenched the, the uh, explosion, and then they covered everything in concrete. In other words, this is called entombment. Entombment means worse comes to worse, you simply bury the entire reactor in sand and concrete and keep your fingers crossed. Well, the accident is not over because the melted uranium is an unknown melted configuration. And when it rains, water seeps into the cracks. Water is a moderator. It actually accelerates the chain reaction. And you can actually see the needles. The needles start to rise when it rains and go down when, it, when the rain stops. Well, the molten core is still hot. It is still melting into the ground. It is still highly radioactive. And recently, apparently, the configuration of the uranium has been changing, probably because it's still melting and who knows for sure what's really happening, but it's unstable. And recent reports say that maybe, just maybe if the melted uranium uh, goes into a certain configuration, it could become unstable and the chain reaction, the chain reaction could start all over again. Now, no one is saying that there could be an explosion which could then release enormous quantities of nuclear material into the air. But physicists are saying we have to be very careful. The situation is unstable and it could spiral out of control because we don't know the configuration of the melted uranium at Chernobyl. So this nightmare, this nightmare of Chernobyl is actually not over by any means, even though there have been a number of TV specials concerning the Chernobyl accident. It is not over because the uranium is still hot. Also, speaking about hot uranium, the Japanese government is still scratching its head, wondering what to do with all this nuclear waste piling up in terms of contaminated water at Fukushima. The verdict is, dump it into Tokyo Bay. Well, some people are not happy about that, especially the Chinese and the Koreans, the fishermen, the local merchants. They're not happy at all that radioactive water, even if it's processed, is going to be dumped into Tokyo Bay and then eventually mixed with the currents in the Pacific Ocean. Now, to be fair, the government is saying that the water is going to be processed to take most of the nuclear materials out of the water, but there's so much of it, millions of gallons of cooling water, and people are wondering, oh my God, what's going to happen politically, economically, practically, when all that water is dumped into Tokyo Bay, and who knows, maybe it'll get into people's drinking water as a consequence. So in other words, the agony of Chernobyl and the agony of Fukushima are still with us. Even after so many years, the laws of physics don't change, and the laws of physics are, are mandating that this crisis is going to linger on for decades into the future. Well, that completes the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. To find out more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, or go to my Facebook site, 
we have about four and a half million fans on Facebook. Stay tuned now for the second half of exploration as we continue with discussion of well DNA and genetics. Can we trace the genetic origin of the coronavirus? And what about the genetic origin of the human race? We'll talk about that in the second half of exploration. So stay tuned. to exploration. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and we're going to continue our discussion of DNA research. You know, given the fact that we know the genetic sequence of the coronavirus, we can begin to trace its history going backwards in time. You see, we know the mutation rate, the rate at which it mutates, and by checking the variations, we can actually create a family tree, a family tree of where the virus came from. And yes, all indications are it came from the Wuhan area, where there are not one, but two, two institutes uh, devoted to biotechnology, and some of the work is top secret. And therefore, some people are wondering, is that a coincidence, given the fact that the horseshoe bat uh, where the virus probably came from, does not exist naturally in the Hunan area. It comes from the Yunnan area, several hundred miles away. But these organisms were imported from Yunnan into Wunan for studying of the coronavirus. And, well, does 2 plus 2 equal 4? Well, not necessarily. We don't know for sure. But it is a theory that has to be investigated. And the Chinese have resisted all efforts to allow independent scientists to interview their scientists, to inspect the laboratories, to go through the notebooks, to find out what really happened when the coronavirus suddenly exploded on the scene. Well, that same technology for looking at mutations, knowing the rate at which mutations take place, and then creating a family tree, was pioneered with the human race. And on National Geographic, we had Spencer Wells, who then began to retrace the origins of the human race itself. First of all, we find that the oldest DNA comes from Africa, but there were many branches that branched off Africa over the last 100 to 200,000 years. One of the main branches took place roughly 70 to 100,000 years when humans that looked just like us began to migrate from Africa and go into the Middle East. There, the main line began to diverge. One line went south into India and eventually into Southeast Asia, into the Philippines, Indonesia. Another branch went north, north, and then they split in half. One half went east, and they became basically the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans. The other branch branched into Europe and became the Northern Europeans, 
where they bumped into the Neanderthals. And so given the rate at which mutations take place, that's a known quantity, we can even create a timetable, a timetable like a clock to analyze when humanity diverged at certain key points. And then we have a family tree, a family tree of the human race. And it is amazing. We can then test that family tree against mythologies, because of course every race has a myth about its origins. And so we can begin to see that, well, in some areas it correlates, in some areas it does not. For example, if you take a look at the Native Americans, not one, not two, but at least three. Three branches left the Mongolian area, went into Alaska, some went into the terrain of uh, Alaska, others went by boat, but they began to explore North America and South America as a consequence. And we can even date date when these great migrations took place. Every year, this family tree gets more involved, better, uh, act more accuracy, and we're now beginning to have a complete family tree of the human race itself. And so once again, our special guest today is Spencer Wells, and compliments of the National Geographic, we're going to explore the origin of the human race itself. And now I'd like to introduce our special guest today. We're very delighted to have with us Spencer Wells. He's a geneticist with National Geographic, and he made headlines recently by tracing the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is handed down from father to son, and thereby looking for mutations within the Y chromosome through populations of the Earth, you can actually trace the lineage of humanity. That's right, so today we're going to talk about the origins of the human race over the past 50,000 years. So once again, our special guest today is Spencer Wells. We are talking about the Y chromosome and the ability of geneticists to recreate the family tree of humans over the last 50,000 years. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested as a youth in the whole question of biology? Well, it, it came about kind of secondarily. When I was uh, very young, kind of six, seven, eight years old, beginning to think about how I'd want to spend the rest of my life, you know, to the extent that you can at that age, uh, I was fascinated by history, by the idea of traveling back in time. I, I went to see the, the King Tut exhibit that toured the, the States in the late 70s. And I uh, was absolutely fascinated by the idea that, you know, there was a culture that existed thousands of years ago, and they made these amazing things. Um, so it was, you know, from a historical background that I was interested in, you know, investigating the world and all of that. And around that time, my mother actually went back to school to get her Ph.D. in biology. And I started hanging out in the laboratory with her, and I discovered that science, um, while, you know, it is 
kind of odd in some ways. It's not really about, you know, secretive people speaking a special language, wearing white coats. It's really about discovering new things. It's about creating novelty. And every day is like solving a puzzle. And that is an incredible thing to be able to do. And so, you know, I, I started off with this interest in history, but it kind of morphed into a love of what you can do with science, investigating the world and discovering new things. And ultimately, by the time I was in high school, I decided that I wanted to use science as a tool for investigating the past, and that's what I've ended up doing, so I'm very lucky. And how did you get interested in the whole aspect of using genes to trace human genealogy going back thousands of years? Well, if you, you, know, if you are scientifically minded and you want to be a scientist, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of mechanistic stuff that you need to learn. You need to learn how atoms combined into molecules and organic chemistry, and you need to learn how genes are turned on and off and, and all of that stuff. But again, what I wanted to do ultimately was to use the knowledge of biology, use molecular biology as a tool to investigate the past. And so as a biologist, that means that you're studying evolution. You're studying the biological history of a species. And I did my Ph.D. work with a guy called Dick Lewinton, a very famous genetics professor at Harvard, uh, working on fruit fly evolution. And you find out if you investigate the way genes change over time, the way evolution actually occurs at a mechanistic level, that so much of evolution has to do with population history, the history of how individuals and populations have moved around and mated with each other. And that's just not inherently interesting for fruit flies, at least for me. <laughs> but it is when you, when you kind of map it onto human history and you start thinking about human migrations and human origins, and that's where I really made the switch. I started using these techniques that we had developed over many years for studying species evolution, and used them, you wanted to apply that to studying questions of human history, and, you know, where did we originate as a species? How did we move around the planet? How did we get to Tierra del Fuego and Iceland and places like that? So, using the tools of genetics to study the past. Now, last year we had Professor Sykes on the radio show. Uh, he traced uh, the lineage through the female genome, uh, looking at the genes within the mitochondria of the cell. And he even dubbed certain names. Uh, Laura, for example, was mm -hmm. the woman whose children, believe it or not, or whose genes have spread to all Europeans and, and Asians. And he gave a rather graphic account of how uh, you can trace the genes through the female line. Now, you've done a lot of work on the Y chromosome. So tell us a little bit about what is the Y chromosome and why is the Y chromosome so crucial in terms of unlocking the genealogy of human evolution? Well, if, if you can trace back in time through the female line to find an Eve, it begs the question of was there an atom around at the same time? Uh, is there a tool that you can use to study the male line of descent? And it turns out, yes, there is, and it's, it's what we call the Y chromosome. Now, sex in mammals is determined by the, the sex chromosome, and if you have mismatched sex chromosomes, an X and a Y chromosome in this case, you are a male. If you have two Xs, you're a female. So this is a chromosome which doesn't actually do very much other than to make men men. But because it is mismatched with its partner, the X chromosome, it doesn't go through the recombinational shuffling that occurs in most of the genome every generation, something that, that mixes up the, the genetic variation and creates new combinations, which is probably a good thing evolutionarily, which is the reason we have it. But it makes our lives very, very difficult. So for studying 
migration patterns, human origins, and so on, we ideally want a piece of DNA that isn't shuffled because it mixes up this variation, makes it very difficult to, to follow the order of events, if you will, going back in time. So we tend to study these non-recombining pieces of DNA, and, and Professor Sykes talked about the mitochondrial DNA tracing this female line, and we have studied the male line, the Y chromosome, which again does not recombine. It turns out that it is a fantastic tool for studying human migration patterns for lots of reasons. The main reason is human mating patterns in most indigenous groups over time um, follow a particular rule, which is that the men really determine group membership, and therefore their Y chromosomes tend to stay put. Oddly enough, in most indigenous populations, the women tend to move around more than the men. And so the signal, the genetic signal that distinguishes between populations tends to get blurred much more rapidly for the female line. That makes the Y chromosome a much better tool for studying differences between populations and therefore the migratory routes that we followed. So in trying to find this, this kind of atom lineage, it turned out that we also identified a tool which is fantastic for following migratory routes, which is what we want to be able to do, to reconstruct these journeys we've taken around the world. So if you are a man, it means you have the Y chromosome of your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, but mutations occur along if you go back far enough. And I guess by tracing the sequence of mutations, you can then trace the family tree, right? That's right. That's right. DNA is a very, very long molecule, and although our cellular machinery is very good at copying it when we have children, occasionally we make a mistake, a little spelling error, a single letter change, typically. Um, in the DNA sequence, and when those changes are passed on, they create a line of descent. If you share a change with someone, you must share an ancestor at some point in the past. And so it's these changes that have accumulated over time that we use as the tools for, for studying the past with DNA. Okay, now let's go back chronologically uh, concerning the evolution of modern humans and migration patterns. Uh, many anthropologists believe that about 100,000 years ago, you know, plus or minus tens of thousands of years, but about 100,000 years ago, modern humans who look pretty much like us, uh, you give them a haircut, a three-piece suit, and put them on a Wall Street, and they look like pretty much all the other barbarians on Wall Street. <laughs> so let's say you now trace the lineage, because at that point, an out-of-Africa thing happened. Uh, migrations took place out of Africa of modern humans. So now trace for us what happens 100,000 years ago as humans begin to leave Africa. Well, it, it really, you, you've got to, the history of migration out of Africa is actually much more complicated than that. Uh, you've got to distinguish, in this case, between anatomically modern humans, people who look pretty much like us, and people who act like us, people who are behaviorally modern. Uh, and given that our species is, kind of created by our brains. We are homo sapiens, wise men. It's really the behaviorally modern humans that we're interested in. So at 100,000 years ago, you're absolutely right. There are individuals in Africa and shortly thereafter, just outside of Africa in the Middle East, who look pretty much like us, but they're not acting like us. They haven't gone through the change in behavior, which led to something we call the Upper Paleolithic in archaeology, a change in the way we interacted with the world, the creation of art, probably fully modern language like we're speaking now, syntactic language, change in group structure, and so on. That's when we really became modern humans. And so that exodus didn't actually occur until around fifty to 60,000 years ago, we think, from looking at the genetic data. Now, the people who were around at 100,000 years ago, as you said, yes, they did start to leave Africa. They made it into the Middle East, in fact. 
But after 80,000 years ago, they retreated back into Africa or went extinct. They didn't continue to exist outside of Africa. And in fact, at those sites in the Middle East that they made these initial forays out of Africa into, they were replaced by Neanderthals. And so they're pulling back into Africa after 80,000 years ago. And it's not until after 60,000 years ago that we get the, the real onslaught of modern humans with this modern human behavior. Okay, so let's start now at 50,000 years where humans that behave like us begin to migrate and then a great diaspora begins to take place. So start to trace for us some of the markers as we trace the lineage of humans. Well, so around 50 to 60,000 years ago, there was very likely an early migration along the southern coast of Asia. We can trace a lineage defined by a marker we call M130 or RPS4YT. You can call it the coastal marker, though, if you will. And this is a very rapid migration, we believe, that, that made it to Australia virtually overnight, within a few thousand years probably of leaving Africa. And we can trace this the migration of these genetic lineages by looking at the DNA of people living on that route today. So people living in southern India, for instance, retain traces of these migrants who went through 50,000 years ago, an extraordinary thing that these people, in essence, have been living in the same place for 50,000 years and haven't dispersed their genes all over the place. You can still see the, the palimpsest, a glimpse of this migratory route, which is a good thing. Because archaeologically, there's no evidence for it. Not until around 30,000, 35,000 years ago do we see modern human remains and modern human tools in southern India. And yet, we, we see modern human remains in Australia at around 50,000 years ago. So clearly, there's a disconnect there. They must have made it through India in order to reach Australia unless they simply leapt from Africa to Australia, which, of course, is impossible. So the genetics is really giving us the clues about this very early migration along the coast. Uh, we believe there was a second migration very soon after this, maybe 45,000 years ago, which went up into the Middle East. And from there, these people actually became the ones who populated most of the Northern Hemisphere, most of Asia, Europe, and ultimately the Americas. Okay, now that migration that went north, the second migration, mm -hmm. I understand then splits. I understand part going into Asia and part going into Europe. But could you elaborate? Yeah, absolutely. These people are carrying a marker we call M89. Uh, it is, you know, a second out of Africa marker. They trace back to, again, a common origin in Africa. But this is a second wave of migration that, as you say, went up into the Middle East. From there, some of them went over into Europe, but not many, we think, because these, these kind of ancient lineages that would have been found in the Middle East at that time are not found at very high frequency in Europe. Oddly enough, what they chose to do was to migrate into Central Asia. Now, why did they do this? Probably because, as people who were adapted to life on the East African savannas, which is where we believe all of this very early stuff went on, the origin of modern humans and so on, these are grassland dwellers. These people would have wanted to follow the game, the food. And the grasslands lead you into Central Asia out of the Middle East. They don't lead you across Anatolia and into the Balkans. The Balkans are mountainous, forested, etc. And so probably, we believe, they, they migrated into Central Asia following the herds. And there's very good genetic evidence for this because the people who lived in Central Asia later migrated westward into Europe, eastward into East Asia, and ultimately into the Americas. Okay, so we have the second migration with the M89 marker going north, going into now Central Asia, mm -hmm. and then at that point splitting in half, more or less, one group then going into Europe, becoming the Europeans, mm -hmm. and the other part going into Asia, becoming the Asians. Yes. 
Okay, now where do the Native Americans now come into play? Well, the Native Americans come out of this Central Asian cauldron, if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this bubbling cauldron of humanity which spewed out people into Europe and into Asia. Some of them migrated north into Siberia. And around 15,000 years ago or so, certainly no earlier than 20,000 years ago, based on the genetic dates we have, a few of these people went across the Bering Land Bridge, which existed at that time as a result of the last ice age. The sea levels had dropped, and so there was a land connection between Northeast Asia and the northwestern part of North America. They migrated across into Alaska and ultimately down into North America around 15,000 years ago again. Okay. Now, as I understand, uh, you can actually trace in Native American peoples not just one wave, but actually several waves of uh, early humans that uh, went uh, through Alaska into the Americas. Is that right? Yeah, that, this is the earliest wave of migration, mm -hmm. and it's the one that made it very rapidly down into South America, and it is the main wave of migration, we believe, simply because it's, it's these markers, the most common ones we see in Native American populations. But there's good evidence that there was a second migration around six to 8,000 years ago along the coast, because at that time the, the Bering Land Bridge had been submerged again. The ice sheets had, had started to retreat. And so the only way that people could have gotten there is by using boats. And in fact, the distribution of the lineages that probably composed that second wave of migration are found in the western part of North America. They're not found in South America. So it's consistent. The genetic pattern is consistent with what we know about the paleoclimatology, the geology, and so on. So this second migration came across into North America, and the people settled along the coast. And then from there, it migrated somewhat inland. Now, there's a controversy going on right now concerning Kennewick Man that you're probably familiar with. We have the remnants of a very ancient um, uh, remains of an individual that seems to predate uh, many of the other, other uh, Native American uh, fossils that have been found. And uh, this person may not even resemble uh, the other Native Americans according to facial reconstructions that have been done. But the question is then, who owns these bones? Uh, do Native <laughs> Americans then, can, can they bury them as their ancestor? Or do scientists analyze them as nothing but one of several waves that came over from, from Asia? Yeah, well, Kennewick is interesting, but actually not anomalous because all of the, the skeletons or skulls um, that I'm aware of, dating from around that time, Kennewick is actually a fairly early um, remain. It, it's, it dates from around 9,000 years ago. Most of the remains, the skulls that have been recovered from that time period, the kind of eight to 11,000 year ago period, look more European than today's Native Americans. And it doesn't matter where they're found. They found skulls in Brazil from that time period that also look a little bit more European. Why is this? Were they, you know, Europeans who had migrated across? No, clearly, again, you look at the genetic lineages and all Native Americans came out of Asia from Siberia. The reason they look perhaps a little bit more European, again, traces back to this, this origin in Central Asia. Remember, this is the same group of people who gave rise to the Europeans. So it's, it's probably uh, as a result of the shared ancestry with Europeans long ago in, on the steppes of Central Asia. So that begs the question, why do today's Native Americans not look like that as well? It's possible that this second wave of migration, which we believe came from further east in Asia, could have brought people who looked a little bit more East Asian or Mongoloid in appearance. And perhaps the, the mixing of these groups uh, changed the appearance of the Native Americans. It's also possible there were local events that people, you know, over time change anyway. You move into a new area, particularly if the population size is small, and your appearance will change. Your gene frequencies will change somewhat due to something we call genetic drift. We don't know exactly, but very clearly the people living in the Americas today, the Native Americans, 
trace their ancestry back to this part of, of, of Asia. And it's not that there were wandering bands of Europeans here before them. Okay, now let's talk about the Polynesians. Uh, where do the Polynesians fit into this? The Polynesians are, are quite interesting. They, uh, they ultimately trace back, and I talk about this in, in my book, uh, The Journey of Man, they ultimately trace back to an origin in Southeast Asia. Um, and they probably, their expansion into the Pacific was driven by the expansion of rice agriculture in East Asia, which increased the population pressure and people set out on voyages to find new lands to cultivate and so on. And as they migrated southward down into Indonesia and ultimately out into Melanesia around New Guinea, um, they began to take longer and longer voyages. And some of them, at some point around 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, set off into the Pacific. And you can literally trace the migration of people from island to island with these genetic markers, but they do trace back to this region of Southeast Asia. And we believe, due to the timing, that it probably was ultimately driven by this expansion, the expanding population, as a result of the development of rice agriculture. Okay. Now we also have uh, genetic mysteries that go back centuries. Uh, For example, in northern Japan, we have the Ainu people, who are extremely hairy. They're some of the hairiest Caucasians on the planet Earth, from what I understand. Uh, they don't look like the, the native Japanese, who are Asian-looking. And so where did the Ainu of northern Japan come from? Well, the first thing, the first point to, to make is that physical appearance can actually change fairly rapidly. If you, if you take the evidence at face value, we all everybody living in the world today, share an ancestry in Africa around 50,000 years ago. That's only a couple of thousand generations. That means that within the last couple of thousand generations, we have generated all of the physical diversity we see in the world today. And in fact, even on local levels, you you find people changing their appearance today through something we call sexual selection. This was first suggested by Darwin over 100 years ago as the reason why people do look so different. You choose people to mate with on the basis of what you find attractive, and that varies according to where you are in the world. And so... You know, I read a story in uh, the, the Times of London a couple of years ago about a village in Romania where all of the women have mustaches because the men in that particular region find it very attractive. And, you know, over time this may become a defining feature which distinguishes them from people in the surrounding area. So simply because people look different doesn't mean that they have a very different ancestry from the people living nearby. Now, in the case of the Ainu, uh, there are certain markers that are at higher frequency in the Ainu, and they do correlate with probably an earlier expansion into Japan. So perhaps these were the aboriginal inhabitants. Now, it's likely that these people came out of Asia from ultimately the Central Asian stock. So it is consistent, again, with this origin ultimately in Central Asia, the the same one that gave rise to the Europeans. So they're retaining, perhaps, European features. Maybe that is part of the reason they do look different from the, the rest of the Japanese. Okay, so to sum up, we had the first migration out of Africa that followed the coastline into India and into Australia. We had the second migration that carried the M89 marker that went into Central Asia that then split into many directions, including Europe and China and then the Americas. Were there other, then, other migrations out of Africa? Um, Yeah, I mean, there has been a certain amount of genetic exchange across the Sahara, but the Sahara is a pretty formidable barrier. Um, There have been back migrations into Africa from the Middle East uh, within the last 10 to 20,000 years. And, of course, there's exchange going on today. And and as people, you know, began to sail ships, thinking about the Polynesian expansion, there was actually a, a migration of Polynesians westward across the Indian Ocean, settling in Madagascar a couple of thousand years ago. 
um, and they speak a language which is related to the Polynesian languages, Malagasy, totally unrelated to the African languages spoken nearby. So, you know, there has been some exchange with sub-Saharan Africa, but not much because of, again, that formidable barrier, the Sahara, which has kept populations apart. And also, what was the mechanism that drove early humans out of Africa? Was it the changing climate? I mean, after all, there was an ice age going on, especially in the northern uh, and, and southern latitudes. Uh, what was the reason why there were all these migrations out of Africa starting around 50,000, 60,000 years ago? Well, we, we do think it, it comes down to, to climate change. Um, as you say, we were headed into the worst part of the last ice age, which began roughly 110,000, 120,000 years ago. But it really started to get bad after around 70,000 years ago. And, in fact, we, we know from looking at other parts of the genome, not the Y chromosome, not mitochondrial DNA, but looking at you know, the, the autosomal markers, as we call them, uh, that the population size probably crashed around that time as we were going into the worst part of the last ice age. In fact, some of the most recent results uh, coming out of Mark Feldman's group at Stanford suggest that the population dropped down to a couple of thousand individuals. So we're nearly extinct at that time. We're holding on by our fingernails. What we think happened was the ones who survived, survived because they were very clever. They'd gone through what we call the great leap forward in, in behavior when we became behaviorally modern. And that adaptation, if you will, that ability to survive in these harsh conditions also gave them what they needed to be able to go out and take over the world. And Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, and our special guest today was Spencer Wells of the National Geographic, talking about the DNA origin of the human race. And if you want to find out more about exploration, go to my website. It's mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and find out about my latest bestseller. It's called The God Equation. The Quest for a Theory of Everything, tracing the last 2,000 years of our search for the holy grail of science, an equation perhaps no more than one inch long that will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God, in the words of Albert Einstein. So once again, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U dot org. Good day. <laughs>